Hello and welcome to Oats for Breakfast. Oats for Breakfast is affiliated with the Socialist Project, an eco-socialist organization based in Toronto. My name is Sadia. And I'm Omer. In this episode, you will hear us interview Adolf Reed Jr. Adolf is an American professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in race and American politics. Yes, it's a very special episode, but all of our episodes are special. I mean, all of our guests have been great, but this is the first time that Sadia is an interviewer, but I guess that makes it special. And I do feel special for getting to be an interviewer on the show. Along with Sadia, it was Daniel who interviewed Adolf Reed. So you won't be hearing my voice on the interview when, when we get to the interview. Uh, and the reason we got to do the interview was actually all thanks to Sam Gindin. Sam, of course, is, uh, has been on the show uh, as a guest. So he's a friend of, his, of the show. And it just so happened that Adolf was in Toronto and staying with Sam. And Sam thought that we might benefit from talking to him. Uh, and so we did. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. So... The interview starts off by discussing the 1960s and 70s radicalism and the places it has in the imaginations of radicals and leftists in North America since then. In particular, we talk about the black power movement of that time and even more specifically of the Black Panther Party. Yeah, and Adolf really is uh, quite interested in dispelling the romantic notions that we have of that time. And then after you talk about the 1960s and the Black Power Movement, you move on to talking about much more sort of contemporary issues around identity and class and how to think about them. Yeah, I think Adolf asks us to challenge some of our commonly held notions about how we understand the identities and priorities of people we wish to organize with. And, you know, it's it's something that speaks to me quite a lot because of my experiences of organizing and I think a lot of other organizers or people who've been thinking about this would get a lot out of this to to chew on. I think so. All right. So should we cut to the interview? Let's do it. Adolf Weed is an American professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in race and politics. Welcome, Adolf. Thank you. Uh, It's very good to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Adolf, um, one of the things that you often chat about is uh, that there is a romanticization among the left for uh, the 60s -hmm. and the Black Power Movement, especially the Black Panther Party. In the last uh, five, six years especially, there's been a number of movies and a popularization of the Black Panthers. What do you think is problematic about that? I guess the first problem is that it's it's driven by a, a romantic naivete that would be acceptable enough just as a romantic na- naivete, but it misses the actual political changes that occurred during the 1960s and the constitution of what we now all understand to be black politics. It's been especially interesting watching this happen over the last 10, 10, 15 years, because groups like the Panthers, which first of all were only kind of tangentially linked to black power politics, 
were never really more than on the fringes of, of the political transformations wrought by the Voting Rights Act. So that uh, Peniel Joseph, who, whose work may not be read up here, it would be better for Canada if it weren't, who's been trying to construct a field called Black Power Studies in his uh, you know, definitive book goes from Black Panther rallies and, and stuff and jumps to hip-hop like the Voting Rights Act and the implications of the Voting Rights Act didn't happen. And as Cedric Johnson, my friend and comrade, um, has pointed out, there's an important distinction that this discourse misses uh, you know, between uh, what he describes as black ethnic politics that took shape in the mid 19s or well, in the 50s and 60s across the post-war period, but especially after the Voting Rights Act was passed uh, and with racial transition in Can big cities. Can I interrupt cities. you yeah. to mm-hmm. ask sure. uh, what was the Voting Rights uh, Act? Sorry, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I don't want to make this a shaggy dog tail or more of a shaggy dog tail than it is, but as a result of institutional and of new demographic changes along with the New Deal, the balance of power in national political sentiment shifted in what well, shifted away from support for racial segregation. So the two big le- legislative accomplishments or victories of the civil rights movement were the 1964 Civil Rights Act that outlawed discrimination in public accommodations and wrote federal anti-discrimination protections into law. And the next year, uh, you know, the Voting Rights Act Im- imposed federal oversight and control over voting practices in states that had previously abrogated blacks' rights. Okay. The big shift in black American politics after the Voting Rights Act, but really it was a combination of the Voting Rights Act and shifting demographic patterns in cities across the post-war era, was the emergence of a cohort class stratum of black public officials and functionaries, both elective and appointive, and the opening of employment opportunities greatly increased um, the opportunities available for, for black professional and, and a managerial strata. And their contest over um, defining what was to be understood as the stakes and the agenda of black politics is what gave us you know, the interest group pluralism. So I know that's a little bit like you asked me what time it was and I told you how to make a watch, but. But, but I'll try to be a little more parsimonious as we go on. No, but that's, uh, that's very helpful. Uh, okay. So maybe if we can come back to the Black Panthers. Right. Well, this is the context in which black power emerged. Black power emerged first as a sensibility, right? I mean, I was 19 when um, Stokely Carmichael shouted black power on, on the Meredith March. And I, like everybody else in my cohort, was swept up in it and, and intensely moved by it. It didn't have any particular content, right? So one way to look at the next several years was like a struggle over what this amorphous notion was going to be taken to mean. And it meant stuff like putting black faces in previously all-white places. It meant stuff like uh, I mean, community control. And, and there were contending tendencies. But unsurprisingly, the tendencies that had the closest closest connections right, to institutional power through both local de- democratic party structures and settled institutions, right, like churches and stuff, were the elements within the population or within the political community that won the struggle over definition. Now, when people look back on the black power era, 
they tend to look back and see what my son sometimes describes as the costume party facet of black power, right? The costumes, the feathers, and the rest. The Black Panther Party emerged out of that moment, right? And it emerged in, in response to very specific conditions in Oakland. Now the, now, the BPP was founded in 66. By the end of the decade, uh, I mean, I've sometimes said only half in jest that by 1970, there were probably more cops and thugs in the Black Panther Party, especially outside Oakland, than anybody else. So the fact of the matter is that the Black Panther Party was never a significant force in black American politics. And there are a lot of reasons for that, right? But among those reasons was the BPP's own tendencies toward a flamboyant posturing. And you know, I don't mean this in any way as blaming the victim, but there was a sense in which the Panthers' rhetoric, right, about the repressive nature of the state was something that they adopted but didn't really internalize all the way, right? So, I mean, that's what I would say about the Black Panthers. So, yeah. I mean, uh, I know you're speaking about Black Power more generally, but the Black Panther Party especially, um, is there anything that we should be, that you, in your opinion, that we should be um, keeping as lessons or, um, or is it something that we just appreciate in the historical context and then move on? I, I would say door number three, right? And it's like that with Malcolm X too, right, by the way. And look, I mean, I was as moved by, by Malcolm X like as anybody was like when I was a teenager. But people forget, right, that like Malcolm X was dead before the vast majority of stuff that we associate with the 1960s even happened, right? And I know that there's a tendency to look back at, uh, for symbolic inspiration. And I understand that. I was raised Catholic, right? But the fact is that the context in which both Malcolm and the Black Panthers and third, third worldism in a general, I came through at politics also, right, um, seemed powerful was a context that was purblind, right? And, you know, the Alba Minerva flies only at dusk. And the really significant dynamics that were occurring around race and politics in the U.S. at that time didn't really have anything to do with Malcolm or third world identification or the Panthers. But I will say this, though, that James, James Boggs, right, a former auto worker, right, made this point about the Panthers. He said, look, look, like, can you imagine a Viet Cong fighter walking down the main street in Saigon with a black leather jacket that said guerrilla fighter on the back of it, right? So, and I mean, that speaks to, to one thing I said earlier about the Panthers, that they that their discourse that, that stressed you know, state repression didn't really inform their practice. And I mean, you could see it in, in the Panther newspaper, right, by 69. Well, when you look at the Panther newspaper, like everything was about demonstrating the intensity of, of a police repression in black communities. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, it was there. Like first time I, I ever saw the Battle of Algiers, I thought, should I have been in this movie? Right, uh, because because that's how we live with the police, right? But but when I would read the paper, uh, and you know I supported the Panthers early on, just like um, you know anybody else who had a socialist politics. But as I read these articles, I thought, well, whom are they trying to convince, right? Because if you're living under police repression, well, then you know it, right? So it takes more more than expose, and the posture that that they'd already adopted was demonstrating to white liberals that police operated like an occupying army, 
right? And they enacted a kind of ultra-leftism that drove ordinary people nuts, right? Uh, so again, like the point is that by 1970, 71, like the Panthers were no longer a political force anywhere except uh, in possibly Oakland. The romantic, but, but again, let's go back to the question about, uh, about looking to the past for inspiration. I mean, look, I mean, um, I and the strain of the movement that I was part of drew inspiration from the FLN, uh, the NLF, the MPLA, um, Frelimo, Cuba, of course, and from the revolutionary movements around the world. But the fact is that that inspiration didn't help us to make sense either of our circumstances or the way things turned out, theirs either. Um, I wonder if, uh, so you're talking about this concept, the rhetoric of Black Panther, um, kind of certain romantic notions that, as, you, as, as you describe them. One could possibly look at them as in and of themselves dangerous, a certain type of rhetoric that it naturally lends itself to being, if you want to call it co-optation, or, or is it at worst just irrelevant, like a, a kind of a, not really the main issue, that there's, there are all these real dynamics happening. Right. And how would you respond to some people who might say, for some people, it's emboldening, you know, mm-hmm. Black Panther is something that it can be taken, uh, it can be used, it can be a tool to, to, to lead to uh, certain political initiatives that aren't socialists, that aren't good for anybody, or it can be used for something better. I don't know. I mean, it's a good question, but um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't. Um, um, I think anything that captures any kind of constituency is something that needs to be reckoned with, right? But uh, the question then can be, what is it that people connect with? Because it doesn't have to be the official program or the critique of whatever you know the group is, right? Trump is a good illustration of this on the right. Right. Um, people probably imagine themselves doing a whole lot of things when they voted for Trump. Right. Um, I guess a question is what the potential is for whatever, like the discourse is that sort of draw, draws people to it. What the potential is there for building something uh, that moves in the direction that we think it needs to move in. Now, I mean, I'll say this, like. In talking to people in union locals, right? Um, I'm an anecdote. Like years ago, again, like in the mid '90s when I was in Chicago, when a strain of the left had made a determination that the struggle for a new trial for a Mumia Abu Jamal was the really important thing, and that's what black people were concerned about. My downstairs neighbors in my apartment building were a couple black, right? Both. Um, the guy was, um, he was an electrician like in the IBEW. His wife was a city worker who had been in the Ask Me local um, till she was promoted out of it. And they were, you know, good progressive trade unionists, right? Not ideologues. And I know that if I had brought them a petition to sign for uh, Mumia to have um, a new trial and explain to them why, right, they'd been ra- railroaded, right, even though he may have been guilty. I mean, somebody shot the cop, hell. I am um, certainly would have signed it. But if I'd asked them to enumerate the top 20 things that they were concerned about in, in their lives, he wouldn't have made the tournament, right? right? I mean, he wouldn't have gotten a bid. Um, 
And it's like that. So, so sometimes people who pay attention to politics will uh, raise some of you know, the race-first lines. But then when you talk to them a little bit, it kind of goes away, right? Because that doesn't really capture what's, what's driving even those inequalities that appear as um, disproportionate by a race. So what do you think would capture it? Just to talk to people about the conditions that they experience in their own lives, right? And like those are going to be, by and large, the concerns that are shared broadly by everybody who works for a living, right? Um, and um, I mean, I have a friend who, who's a staffer at Unite here lo lo local uh, on the West Coast. I shouldn't go beyond that. But when he first um, began to work there, a number of his fellow staffers who were leftists, right, were really frustrated because they couldn't get the members to get jacked up about Black Lives Matter. And it's not like the members, you know, liked the cops or had any delusions about how police operate in, in, in uh, communities of color, but they were more concerned with the contract, right? And the thing is that these police excesses, terrible as they are, comparatively frequent as they may be, they're still extraordinary, right? Like it doesn't happen every day, even in, in um, near Chicago, right? And that's not how most people spend mo most of their time being concerned about, right? So, I mean, again, I guess I'll just come back and underscore th this point again. Like you talk to people um, about the concerns that they have in their lives, both in the workplace and also like the basic four, right? Uh, jobs, healthcare, housing, education, right? And that gets through to people. It, uh, I mean, it really does, right? It really does, right, on an everyday basis. Uh, so I agree. absolutely okay. agree that uh, if you ask people what are your main concerns, they're not going to mention Mumia. They may bring up uh, a, a lot of different things, actually, mm -hmm. depending on the community. Right. But uh, I, I wonder if black power doesn't necessarily have to mean that. It's just that's what it meant in a certain place at a certain time. It may mean different things in different places. Right. So you say, like, okay, right. I believe in black power. So what does that mean for you? Oh, in my community, gentrification is important. In my community, we're, we're dealing with harassment by the cops or this or that. Well, um, I mean, we start with, with the gentrification point, like as an illustration, because I've actually been on, on a personal campaign to ban uh, the references to gentrification, right? Because what it does and has done is it culturalizes the phenomenon in a way that, first of all, makes the political economic dynamics that are driving it, it invisible, right? So as clunky as it may sound, and this may speak to my past as a public functionary, but I'm just on a campaign for us to call it rent-intensifying re redevelopment, publicly supported rent-intensifying redevelopment, because that's what the problem is. But concretely, right, I mean, the other problem with the gentrification rhetoric, and I think this would speak more broadly, like to a black power kind of understanding, is the slippage between you know, the abstract notion of community and concrete programmatic uh, responses, right? So with respect to gentrification, for instance, what, what the main calls are that the incomers should uh, respect the habitus and the practices of the aboriginal occupants, right? And that, that the community should have a voice in the redevelopment process. Well, but what community means is same group developers, right? And some of them are nonprofit funded, uh, you know, community based organizations. So, 
And this is what black power did. I mean, this is why, why I say that black power was a class program, right? Like it wasn't an alternative to a class, to a class program. It was a class program. It was the, the program of this rising professional and managerial class, right? And the racial discourse is like a form of that group's capital, right? So yeah, it might be possible in principle, right, to mobilize around like a notion of black power uh, toward more collective ends. But the reality is that the class dynamics that are concealed within the artificial construct of the community will come around and bite us in the ass. Mm -hmm. You often have these very important incisive criticisms of the way identity, whether, mm -hmm. it's, whether it's race, gender, or whatnot, uh, is being used mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, in the left, in politics. And um, I'd like to talk about, uh, one, if you could talk about that criticism of how identity is being used, but also the the criticism that sometimes comes up that uh, we're simply talking past one another. So uh, if uh, someone is talking about their race mm -hmm. uh, uh, rather than it being an abstract identity that can be easily co-opted into a neoliberal uh, agenda, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people really are talking about class in just different ways. Race is really, if you unpack it, it's a it's a class condition. Well, up to a certain point, right? But, all right, so um, here's an illustration, okay. Um, so we go back to the 2016 campaign for the Democratic nomination, right? What matured as a kind of unholy alliance between you know, the left identitarian world uh, about race and gender and the corporate wing of the Democratic Party was that Sanders' candidacy was flawed because he didn't take account of race, I mean, didn't take account of gender and so forth and so on. Now, now, to be honest, I worked in the Sanders campaign. And whenever, like, the question would come up about why Sanders didn't appeal to black people, I, I just went down, you know, the platform. And with every item, right, asked, I mean, how, how is this an issue or a program that wouldn't disproportionately benefit blacks and Latinos? And I don't think this is like the um, self flattering mist of memory, but I can't recall having a conversation with working black people for whom that response what wasn't good enough, right? I do recall uh, a lot of conversations with people in the PMC for whom that response what was not good enough because their status as political spokespersons hinges on identifying the concerns of blacks, blacks and Latinos and women for that matter with a handful of issues that are defined within the framework of palace politics, right, uh, in, in the Clinton Knight wing of the Democratic Party. Um, so, what I mean, the issue isn't whether people care about their identities, right, whatever the identities are, right, but, but the question has always been what those, those mean as the foundation for a politics. And the position I've come to, I mean, over the years, and this was also at a, you know, after a decade or more of trying to figure out a way to follow out on the promise of the left wing of black power ideology that there was some genuine community interest out there that could be re represented apart from the elites. And I finally came to realize there's no such thing, right? So the position I've come to is that what we understand as identity politics 
isn't an alternative to a class politics. It's an expression of a kind of class politics, but the politics of a different class from the working class. So this is connected to the bigger uh, question that Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes comes up uh, in regards to your work. Uh, You Mm -hmm. are identified with, uh, there's this you know, class versus identity. Yeah, it's a bullshit debate. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah. frankly, like the people who want to align me with this kind of class first position that nobody hold, holds anyway are people who are just trying to skirt the debate. So I mean, life's too short, I'm too old. <laughs> uh. Yeah, but the framing of uh, it's all class, it wasn't about race. The, I'm talking no, about no, the people who yeah. are, uh, I mean, I, I'm well, simplification. Well, simplifying, yeah, but fuck them though, right? Because, yeah. I'm, oh, sorry, excuse me. <laughs> but 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 I mean, because nobody's saying that race doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, nobody's saying that that, that there's no racism out there. Right. I mean, shit, I grew up in the Jim Crow South, for God's sake. I mean, how stupid yeah. Yeah. would I possibly be to say there's no such thing as racism? Mm-hmm. But but see, here's the thing, right? And like, this is one of the things I really don't like about the discourse of white supremacy or ra- racism or, or I mean, for that matter, sexism. There's a presumption that there's something hard hardwired or that commitments, and I think it's especially true about racism, right, that in the post-World War II context, racism has often been characterized, like in the U.S., as the national disease, the um, original sin, and it's like the evil that trumps all, all evils. And what a lot of the literature, uh, uh, the nominally scholarly literature about race does, is kind of goes back and examines history to find I mean, instances of, of intense white commitment to ugly, even pornographic white supremacy. And I mean, my take is, okay, yeah, I mean, you can find as, as many instances of racism as you want to find, like in American history. But that's not the totality of it. And what I mean by that isn't some kind of soppy bullshit about about the ideals that we have. But what, what, what I mean concretely is like if you take a case like the open housing riots, right, in, in American cities, you can find people making the most disgusting racist comments dur- during those fights. That doesn't necessarily say anything about the kind of relationships that they had or, or, or the ways that they see blacks and, and you know, other non-whites prior to those fights or even after those fights. And it doesn't say, say anything really about their fundamental commitment to a notion of white exclusivity in, in their neighborhoods because the, the font of the idea of racial exclusivity at, at, as a source of a home value came from the real estate industry, right? It was imposed by, by the real estate industry. So, so, I mean, that's the reality that, that there's been out there for people to understand themselves in a, in, a, in a relation to. So, I mean, I think one of the things, what I'm hearing you say, Adolf, is that when we take race as independent, as an independent source of oppression, mm-hmm. then we actually don't end up appreciating 
the realities of racialization and the complexities of racialization. And, you know, to add to uh, the illustration that you gave, uh, in my work in organizing at Thorncliffe Park, which is largely a South Asian immigrant community, mm-hmm. that we could very easily say, because they're largely Muslim, in the context of Islamophobia, they're very marginalized. Right. But in recent years, when a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Czech and Hungarian Roma moved in, mm-hmm. um, there was rampant anti-Roma sentiment among wow. the, the, the Muslims, right? Oh. And, and there was Islamophobia among the Roma. Right. And so, uh, you know, but the class positions of the two are vastly different from where they're coming from. And so to not appreciate that, to say, look, well, they're all racialized or because mm-hmm. the Roma are actually phenotypically lighter skinned, right. then actually they have some privilege, um, would be to not appreciate the, the complexities uh, of that context. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I mean, in, in that sense, it's hard to say anything about race in, an, in a very, in a completely abstracted Right. Wait, and I think the the implications for politics is that we tend to, that we, on the left, want to side with and represent and fight for the most marginalized, right. and the most marginalized are the racialized. Right. Right. So, um, how would you respond to that? Yeah, um, to the extent that the class dynamics that ultimately drive the society are obscured from, from view, then this language of naturalized um, essential group group difference is what's available right uh, you know for people to understand themselves in and I argued like a long long time ago that that if we think about capitalism not as not just living at the point of production but as being the nature of the cultural totality that um, you know through which the order is re- reproduced then those kinds kinds of ascriptive difference that is difference based on what you supposedly are, like instead of what you do, is functional, useful for uh, stabilizing, I mean, a class hierarchy, right? Um, so I guess I would say that, that I don't, what, um, I, I mean, I don't see these other oppressions as falling outside the capitalist order. I think they are part of it and they're shaped within it. Well, on that note, thanks so much for chatting with us. Oh, oh, hey, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Pleasure to meet you, brother. So I remember how personally offended I was the first time I was told that the Panthers have to be appreciated in moderation uh, because ultimately they failed. And uh, the person who said this to me, of course, was you. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) I did. And uh, at the time, I found uh, that to be quite jarring and disrespectful of a group and a movement that I had held to such high regard and which had inspired a lot of my work. But since then, and I, I guess it's been maybe three or four years since then, I've come to appreciate not just... You know, what the Panthers were doing and the struggles that they faced in doing so, but the reality that they only were able to be around for three or four years and that for a variety of reasons it did fail. And we don't want to replicate the failures. And we don't want to romanticize really anyone or anything. We don't want to put things on a pedestal. We want to treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. Uh, and I think Adolf helps us do that. Yeah, I think so. Um, but there's a there's a tricky relationship that we have with the past right like, and, and i think a lot of it can almost a romanticization of the past can 
stand in for us doing anything in the present rather than sort of inspiring and catalyzing things happening in the present. Okay, so uh, thank you so much for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. You can look us up on Facebook. You can also add us to iTunes or your other podcast app, whatever it may be. If you have some comments or suggestions for future interviews, you can email us at podcast at socialistproject.ca. And uh, if you can, please support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Our Patreon supporters will get to listen to an extended cut of the interview with Adolf. Look for that to be posted by next week. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.